Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. London society is full of women of the very highest birth who have, of their own free choice, remained 35 for years. Oscar Wilde. So as usual, I've opened the front door and grabbed the first two likely-looking Londoners who happen to be out there. It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell. I think screaming does help as well. Ooh, yes, the Warnerman Walrus. They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873. What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? Knuckled. Got Sarah Palin coming. How do you feel about that? A little bit pathetic. <laughs> So we're in the parlour of Dr Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless. Yeah, they're banning soup runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A step in the gate is worth two in the bush. Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon? Listen, you're all idiots. You know, it's my culture or anything. No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff. You engage with other people. You link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What, what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible. London life is a really rich experience, and there's a lot that's good about living here. Boris Johnson he weighs as much as 40 school children. What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, October the 12th, 2012. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, the Foundling Museum was established in 1998 as a charity to care for the Foundling Hospital Collection. Following an extensive fundraising, renovation and rebuilding campaign, the Foundling Museum opened in 2004. They've got a fantastic exhibition here all about Charles Dickens and his responsibilities and uh, contributions to the museum. Between 1837 and 39, Dickens lived right next to the Foundling Hospital Estate in 48 Doughty Street, now the Charles Dickens Museum, and he supported the hospital both financially and through his writing. Director Cara Howell will be giving us a uh, guided tour of the exhibition shortly. Well, here with me today, I've got Chris West, who gives serious and humorous talks about the life and times of Charles Dickens, his London, his bridges, his law, his buildings and his Docklands. And I think we may be talking today about his women, too. Well, the big Victorian question, of course, or the big question springing from the Victorian era, I should say, how do you write a fresh book about Jack the Ripper? Crime journalist Peter Stubley, who is here with us now, too, hit on the idea of examining the other London murders of 1888. And there's about, there's about 50. 
50 or so in total? Yeah, I mean, about murders themselves is about 30-ish, but um, if you include other manslaughter-type things and infanticides, then you're heading up towards uh, almost 100. Let me get a handle on this. Uh, is this project of writing about all the other murders that happened in 88, uh, is it a move against the sort of sensationalist ripperism that we've been talking about actually in previous episodes? Well, it's just it's an attempt to look at it from a different angle, and the idea was to sort of tell, tell illustrate how what life was like in London in '88 by looking at you know the vast array of other murders and killings and deaths that are happening around that time, just to give you a better idea than rather than just talk about you know pe- women who were brutally murdered in the streets of East London. Because it still seems as though you're going for the most sensationalist element, really, if we're, if we're being honest about it. Well, there are plenty of interesting stories, that, that's true, but the, the thing about murder cases and, is that because they were covered quite well in, in newspapers at the time, and because, um, because the trials were, you know, were covered in the proceedings of the Old Bailey, there's quite a lot of information there about family life and the circumstances of what drove people to to kill their children or their lovers and so it sort of gives you a much a a really good portrait of sort of life at that time so my understanding chris west is that your periods just slightly miss each other in terms of the life span of charles dickens and uh, 1888 that's of course peter's specialist area Uh, yes indeed um dickens died didn't he in 1870 uh but i think he was acknowledged as the first crime novelist oh in in a particular novel um, well, several. Uh, the sort of whodunit aspect of things come into a number of his novels, and he was always very interested in the London police and particularly the murkier side of murder and wanting to avoid public hangings and all sorts. We know him as quite the campaigner, particularly for social reform. He's a philanthropist, as we're going to discover in today's show. One thing that I uh, realise when we talk about Dickens is that everybody knows who he is, but not everybody, in fact, far from everybody, has read much or indeed any of his output. Um, we, we might be sort of familiar through uh, TV renderings of things like Oliver Twist or Bleak House or something like that. Very few people... I know P- Peter can, can afford to be smug here because he's just embarked on a full reading of Dickens. My, my knowledge is mainly based on Ladybird books from, from childhood and abridged versions, so... I'm, I'm actually trying to read the proper full works. So let's have a literary... Uh, can, can you do us, Chris, a, a literary potted history of Dickens? How did his writing develop? Uh, so, well, he started with uh, papers, as you say. Um, he was becoming an established uh, writer by the age of 23, 24. He did lots of letters as Boz. Uh, that was his um, code name, as it were, for his early writing. Um, where, where were these letters appearing? And so, well, uh, they would appear all over London, but they also went all over the country. And people would um, queue up at the railway station or whatever to pick up the latest newsletters from him. And then uh, the early novels, they were done in serial form. So again, they come out fortnightly or monthly and again were distributed around the country. And then his novels developed um, 
by 27, 28, he was sort of Michael Jackson of his time. When he went to America, he was mobbed um, with hysteria and um, he had a great tour of America and he went back a second time uh, later in his life. Then his later novels um, got um, uh, rather deeper and uh, if you think of the... We're just thinking in terms of um, murders and whodunits. Uh, think of Mystery of Edwin Drood, which was his last uh, novel and he was only halfway through it when he died. Tell me about Queen Victoria's near involvement in that story. Uh, well, yes, I, was, I don't mean it disrespectfully, but, you know, silly lady. Um, he did actually go to see her in, I think it was February or March in the year that he died, and it was a very long uh, inter- uh, in her presence. Uh, she stood. He wasn't allowed to sit uh, before the monarch, although he was riddled with gout and heaven knows what else, including piles. Uh, so she did um, uh, stand for him. And during the conversation, he did say to her, um, uh, my latest novel, Edwin Drood, um, would you like to be sent um, copies of the uh, the whole synopsis? And unfortunately, she said no. If she'd said yes, uh, we would have avoided the po- possibly the greatest mystery of all time. It's well known that there's been more discussion about his uh, about what would have been the ending than all the rest of his novels put together. On the other hand, of course, it's part of the mystery of Dickens that we still have the mystery of Edwin Drood. Well, another great mystery uh, overexploited to my mind is that of Jack the Ripper and lots of ideas as to who he may have been. What interest me is whether the police resources that were deployed to try and deal with that issue match the furore about who, who he may have been and the, the sensational murders. In looking at the other murders that happened in 1888, Peter, did you note that uh, police uh, were being taken away from those cases in order to deal with this high-profile one? It's hard to tell, but I mean, I think at the, at the height of it, they they virtually they, they swamped the entire East End with police officers, some undercover, um, hiding in corners, waiting to, in case uh, the the killer came along with a, trying to look for a woman to kill. This was preventative then, rather than to aid detection? I mean, I think that was the only thing they could do, because they, they didn't really have any clue who it was. I mean, and I think one of the legends of Jack the Ripper is that despite, I think on September, the night of September the 30th, early hours of September 30th, they, even though they'd swamped the whole area with police officers, he still managed to sneak in between them and supposedly carried out two murders that night. So so he, he's either, you know, a fiend, that's, this is where the legend of his fiendish genius comes from. But um, it, it could be fiendish stupidity on the part of the police at the time. It, it, it could be. They, they were certainly got a lot of stick in the newspapers at the time. I mean, they... Uh, I think at one point the commissioner took a... They decided to test some bloodhounds out in Hyde Park and the commissioner, please, Charles Warren, decided to act as the bait. So he he's almost the, the killer running away and they sort of set the dogs off trying to catch him. But And so he was he was roundly mocked uh, for this in the newspapers at the time and basically they were calling for his resignation and, in fact, he did resign oh. uh, j- just, just before the last supposed murder. Uh, Theoretically, it was over a different matter. 
I seem to remember there was a chap, was it maybe in Manchester, a senior police officer who allowed himself to be shot with a taser to prove their effectiveness? That sounds vaguely comparable. I've managed to lure you directly into the first murder you've talked about has been, in fact, Jack the Ripper, when that's precisely not what the book is about. Tell us about some of the other uh, appalling... Sorry, it sounds so cavalier. Tell us about some of the other gruesome stuff going on. Um, Yeah, it ties in quite well with the, the foundling museum because they were talking about fallen women and fallen women is, is quite a theme at the in that era um because you've you've got at that time when there's there's no abortion or, or abortion is illegal then um there's quite a lot of cases of, of of babies who are you know newborn babies illegitimate children who are sort of left in the street or um hidden in 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 cellars or uh, in one case it's put in a in a kitchen grate and burnt um, or in various other cases, chopped up. I mean, this is a bit gruesome, but this is, these are the kind of things that happen because the, the the mothers were so desperate to uh, sort of avoid the stigma of of being with child. Um, uh, and a lot of them were servants, and so they they feared losing their job or their um, reputation. So it seemed that they were so desperate that they they turned to you know getting rid of the child. Although you could argue that some of them may have been stillborn or died soon after birth. I mean, it was difficult to to tell the difference so that a lot of the time, even though some of them were charged, some of the mothers were charged with murder, they were, the authorities sort of took pity on them quite a lot, juries and judges, and so they tended to occasionally got convicted of concealing the birth rather than, you know, actually killing the child, so... Yes, which, of course, uh, one must remember could be rewarded with the with capital punishment in that day. So we're saying that, what, a large proportion of these murders were infanticide? I think in some statistics it said that half of the half of the homicides were sort of were you know young children maybe under twelve months or but it's it's very hard to sort of get you know full full statistics because um, some of them were never they, they never traced the mother and they don't know how they died anyway so it's a bit of a, a grey area to sort of look into but there's plenty of reports in papers of of babies being found in various places. Well, crikey, you can see why uh, social reform was necessary. And it's, it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because perhaps the uh, the, the Jack the Ripper mu- uh, mystery might be solved if the, the same sort of DNA evidence or um, CCTV, some of those things that kind of join the, the, the dots, not not necessarily identifying what killed the, the person, but uh, you know, tying things together a little bit. I'm conscious that there's definitely a link between the institution we're in today, the Foundling Museum, and Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is wow. just around the corner. And I know, Chris, that Dick is uh, being featured there as well by yourself. There's a big, big project you're working up at the moment. Uh, yes, there is indeed. Um, the 200 years of Charles Dickens we're all celebrating and also um, I have a personal involvement to do with my grandchild um, and Great Ormond Street Hospital and so uh, I'm organising a very big event called Dickens Day for Great Ormond Street Hospital on Sunday the 25th of November at the very salubrious um, premises of the Royal Society Society for medicine. Yes, I thought you were kidding when you suggested how luxurious it was. But why, why is oh, it no, so? Why is it so well appointed? Uh, well, they certainly look after themselves. the The theatre is the most splendid thing. I mean, the youngsters are going to sit there in these gorgeous plush seats, and they've got interaction with computers and heaven as well. And the actual um, electronics and lighting uh, looks to me better than any London theatre. So it's a great privilege to be there. And what's going to be going on on the day? Um, 
um, schools and choirs will be coming through and doing uh, performances of period music or drama uh, for maybe 10 minutes or up to 40 minutes. So they will be in the theatre doing that. And then there will also be a luxury lecture theatre, um, which will be bashing out um, inspirational talks every half an hour. And we will have people like um, Olympic, Paralympic medalists and people who've done extremely well uh, themselves and who are good at talking to children inspirationally so that the children will really have a great time. There will also be a Christmas fair uh, to do Christmas shopping and an exhibition area. So it's a, it's quite a big event. And uh, did Dickens have a direct relationship with Great Ormond Street? Very much so, very much so. Um, he was probably their second greatest benefactor. They had, I think it was 10 beds and they were struggling and um, he did uh, one of his one-man talks uh, I think featuring Christmas Carol and uh, he raised a lot of money and then through his writing etc and um, I might mention I did actually do a BBC film it lasts about 10 minutes about his relationship with Great Ormond Hospital it shows where he was writing 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 to the politicians the church people government etc saying we need to have more beds because we've got children dying in the streets in London it's appalling I don't want to take you onto territory that you would be uncomfortable with but I think that it could only be beneficial to understand the sort of work that Great Ormond Street does to furnish our listener with an example and I know that as you mentioned you've got one from your personal family uh, history yes Uh, yes my granddaughter Natasha uh, she was seven weeks old but lesser and about six inches long I think and she had a cyst in her throat and so she was admitted uh, as quickly as possible to Great Ormond Street Hospital. They were brilliant. They didn't want to operate till they were ready because they said she's so young. We want to learn more and more about her. And then she had to go into intensive care. So we had all that uh, observing their absolute excellence. And then in the middle of the night, um, they decided to operate because the cyst had grown further. And it was uh, highly successful. It's not malignant. She's now 14 months old and you can hardly see the scar. But she would have died that night. What's her name? Can we say hello to her? Hello, Natasha, yes. Hello, Natasha. Well, good, good to have you still with us. That's uh, just one example of the great work that uh, Great Ormond Street does. Who was their biggest benefactor? Um, actually, the writer of Peter Pan. Uh, all the royalties went to um, uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital from that book. J.M. Barry, of course, yeah. I, I had a nasty feeling that uh, the uh, an, another famous figure hung over it, but I might be thinking of the Royal Marsden instead. Anyway, in just a moment, we will be taken by a director of the Foundling Hospital Museum, Caro Howell, and she will be giving us a, a personal guided tour to uh, the goings-on down in the basement here. I, I keep wanting to call it a dungeon, but I really mustn't. Before that, the sponsor of our show this week is doing something.co.uk. And uh, if the excitement of a Dickens day uh, isn't enough for you, there's other things that you can find to do in London as well. Of course, you, you could suggest via doing something.co.uk that a bunch of you might want to go and see the, the goings on there and, and catch Chris's show. If you want to do that, go to uh, doing something something.co.uk forward slash Londonist. Stick your details on the site and uh, tie up with other people. Maybe uh, get a date or just a a platonic meeting of minds somewhere in this great city. So it's doing something.co.uk forward slash 
Londonist. Later on, we'll be subjecting my two guests, Peter and Chris, to a historical quiz. But first of all, let's drift downstairs and meet director Caro Howell. Hello. Hello, Cara. Um, we are here in the uh, the dungeon at the Foundling Museum. I don't think it's officially called the, the dungeon. We are surrounded by Dickens and Alia, and also pictures of a chap who I understand played a significant role in the development of the Foundling uh, Hospital Foundling Museum and also had a direct connection with Charles Dickens. Yes, John Brownlow was the secretary of the Foundling Hospital in the 19th century, and what makes him remarkable was that he was himself a foundling. So he grew up up as a foundling and then stayed at the hospital and worked his way up the kind of the the ranks and ended up as secretary and as secretary one of his uh, responsibilities was collecting the pew rents because the chapel which was at the the heart of the foundling hospital um, one of the ways that the hospital um, generated funds was that people could rent a pew and the hospital chapel was a very popular place to go to Sunday service, it had very good preachers obviously a history established by Handel of wonderful music, the foundlings themselves were a great choir um, and Charles Dickens was somebody who rented a pew when he was living a couple of streets away in Doughty Street So this is like sponsoring a theatre seat or something along those lines? Exactly like sponsoring a theatre seat, yes Could you take us around? I know there's uh, an awful lot going on here, could you uh, show us some of the highlights of this exhibition? Of course, um, what the exhibition uh, um, is doing is really articulating the relationship between Dickens and the Foundling Hospital which was on a number of levels so on a very what you might call factual level he supported the the hospital directly by giving funds from from, um, uh, sponsoring a pew Um, and one of the exhibits you can see the chart that lays out uh, the different seats and who who was supporting the different seats and Dickens is very clearly shown as sitting directly behind John Brownlow so in a position of quite kind of uh, sort of prominence Um, but Dickens also um, supported the Foundling Hospital through his own writing so he in Household Words which was a serialised what you might call a kind of journalistic magazine he wrote a piece called received a blank child um the blank being the gap that's left in the um, admission slip for children so obviously the word male or female would be inserted and he writes about the foundling hospital and paints it in a very good light and um tells his readers what the children are learning that they're looking happy and healthy and fit and are cared for um, then in his own fictional writing, uh, most particularly Little Dorrit and the character Tatty Coram, who is a foundling, um, and Oliver Twist as well, um, which he wrote when he was living in Doughty Street, just around the corner. Um, and then right at the end of his life, he wrote with Wilkie Collins um, a story which was then became a play called No Thoroughfare, which is, um, again, involves the foundling hospital and confused identity. Um, but what's very exciting for us was that um, an academic in a research she was doing um, into the mothers and the petitioning process in the 19th century, um, not so long ago, she discovered completely by accident in the Foundling Hospital archive records a handwritten letter from Charles Dickens petitioning on behalf of a woman, Susan Main, who was trying to get her baby accepted at the hospital. Um, and that letter is on display in the exhibition and it's the first time it's ever been seen in public. 
And do we have that on view here now? We do, yes. It's just around the corner. Um, Dickens himself was an amazing social campaigner. How he had time for everything he did, I have no idea. But he um, helped establish something that was called Urania Cottage, which was a home for what was called fallen women. Um, And what made it unusual was that um, he didn't want it... um, Angela Bedette Coots, um, who was the woman who funded it, who Coots as in Coots Bank, who was an extraordinarily wealthy woman, she and Charles Dickens established Urania Cottage to be somewhere that wasn't institutional. It wasn't about these fallen women um, being made to feel sort of guilty and sinful and be punished. It was supposed to be a homely environment in which they could... Um, in a sense, improve themselves. And then a lot of them went to the colonies, to America, to Australia, to have a completely clean slate, start again, hopefully marry, settle down. Susan Main was one of the women in Urania Cottage, and she became pregnant. Um, So it was this baby that Dickens was keen to try and get accepted into the Foundling Hospital. What's interesting is that a man of Dickens's stature um, was unable to in a sense, uh, sway things in Susan Main's favour because one of the criteria for the Foundling Hospital governors, um, and it was a very critical criteria, was that women, in order to have their babies accepted, it had to be their first and only child and the woman had to have been of previous good character. And Susan Main was discovered to have a sexually transmitted disease. And so the governors clearly took the view that she was not of previous good character and so didn't accept her child. It's probably a very naive question, but could we get a definition of a fallen woman? I think it's quite tenuous. I mean, I think, as in a lot of these things, perhaps the woman had found herself in a sexual situation that was not deemed um, respectable by society, but I think that was quite a sliding scale. And I think then, as now, as always, um, women could find themselves... Uh, sexually compromised by men who had um, promised to marry them, who they believed they were engaged with. There was sexual abuse, and then there was prostitution. So I think, um, certainly in the 19th century, um, society was very hard on women who found themselves in in a particularly pregnant, but also obviously um, sexually active and unmarried. I think I've been learning in recent weeks that there was a a slim chance that somebody in that sort of sexually compromised position could just as easily end up in the mental asylum. Yes, I mean, in in, in a sense, I think... um I mean, as, as we know, I mean, really, right into the to the 20th century, quite late into the 20th century, um, women could be incarcerated um, for, uh, for very tenuous reasons. Um, and, yes, sort of what society deemed sexual deviance could be one. What other positive effects has Dickens exerted on the museum and the, the hospital as well? Um, I think raising profile was absolutely critical um, to the hospital then and as it had always been. I think Dickens was also able to make what was a very private, closed world, make it public for people and enable them to empathise and make connections with the, the foundlings and the situations they found themselves in. Dickens himself um, had a very traumatic childhood. He was taken out of school by his parents and sent to work in a blacking factory, which was a boot polish factory. Um, and he he found this deeply traumatising, incredibly shameful, never spoke of it to anyone other than his best friend, um, who, after Dickens's death, wrote the authorised biography. 
And I think that, that childhood trauma was a, a creative well that Dickens drew on in all his writing. So I think Dickens himself had a kind of a strong empathy with these foundlings. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating about the Foundling Hospital Chapel because when Dickens' sister-in-law died, he was absolutely mortified. It was the most grieving situation of his whole life. And it's said that he spent a great deal of time in the chapel um, communing with God, and um, uh, that was very, very helpful in the process of him healing. Why, why did that particular bereavement mean so very much to him? Um, well, it is probable that he was partially in love with her. There was nothing untoward about it. Um, when she died, she was only 17, but he did have this massive affection for her as well as for his wife. Also on the financial side, um, the, uh, the excellent curator of the museum uh, didn't mention the fact that while he was in the bootblacking factory, he also had the trauma of knowing that his father was in hospital for inde- uh, was in prison for indebtedness, and that had the most profound um, influence on his development as a person. He became obsessive about the need for the correct amount of money to live decently. So I think that that was part of his interest in the Foundlings Hospital, the fact that people needed enough money to be able to survive. Okay, they went off the tracks, um, but that was largely because of finance and circumstances rather than the desire to just have sex with anybody, etc. So I think this was one of the guiding um, influences of his interest in uh, these children and what would happen to them. So keenness to get away from the sort of experiences that had uh, marred his childhood. That's right. Peter, what are you making of what you're seeing here? I'm just staggered by the amount of writing he actually did. He seems he, he just, every day, he seems to have got up, put his head in a bucket of cold water and then sat down and wrote for hours on end. I don't, don't really understand. I can't. I couldn't manage that myself. But uh, he seems to have, like, as, the, as the curator said, he had huge amounts of energy. He just as well as his many children. He, he just seems to be writing non-stop. And oh, he had lots of children of his own as well? Oh, yeah. I, ha- I can't remember how many... How many children has uh, Dickens got? Uh, he had ten. Uh, one of ten. Died very young. Good grief. Indeed. And all, all by the... Did, was, was he married just what, just the once? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, he seems to go over multiples of everything, word, children, I've seen him up, but 20 wives or something. a very busy wife, it seems, isn't it? Well, Yes. <laughs> Yes, that raises a lot of time management questions as well, really, doesn't it? Um, It is true that the marriage ended in failure, but it also has to be said that for a very, very long time they were deeply, intensely in love with each other and the letters, the love letters from him to her are still to be read at the British Museum. Really? When you say failure, what was the outcome of the marriage? Uh, Well, he was desperately unkind um, to his wife. He did rather blame her for having the ten children. Well, you know, as a man of the world, I know that the man has really quite a lot to do with it, doesn't he? Um, He also felt that they were very expensive to keep and they um, perhaps didn't come up to his own, uh, can I use the pun, great expectations. Uh, He was so extra brilliant, there's no doubt about that. We know uh, his IQ was incredibly high. I think um, 
wrongly, maybe his children were really quite disappointing to him. Um, he still had close relationship with several of them, and like his daughters, um, were uh, very close to him towards the end of his life. We're towered over by a bust of the Reverend J.W. Gledel, and this is the preacher that Carrie mentioned packing out the Foundling Hospital chapel. And I think the f- most noticeable thing about the Reverend is that he looks nothing like my conception of a, a Victorian preacher. No, he, he looks a, a bit more like uh, Aristotle, uh, giving a philo- philosophical d- lecture to his students. Uh, but I'm sure he's much more exciting than that. But. Terrifically heroic. Um, not wearing traditional pastor's garb either I've got to say that might contribute to his Grecian appearance he's wearing a sort of a toga-y thing it's a very dramatic figure oh wow okay this is this is a mid-Victorian early Victorian no hold on no when did when did Victoria get, get on the throne it was about 40 wasn't it what 37 okay so this is John Brownlow's scrapbook that we're looking at here uh, somewhere between 1817 and 18. 18- 41 so was that the oh was that the sailor king someone like that who was on do we, do we, have we got our dates i want to say just after the re, just after the regency victoria's 1837 but probably oh dear <laughs> <laughs> i've just learned that uh, all of our knowledge began in 1837 well quite a lot of things did actually ha- started in 1837 because they that's when they started bringing in birth certificates and Death certificate, so that's the earliest time you can... So for, for um, people doing ancestral research, so it's very useful from that, from that year on to look, look, um, for finding out when people were born and died. So, so it's, it's when the sort of state started really keeping tabs on people. Do we know what prompted them to start doing that? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> and so here we have the scrapbook of John... Brownlow, and it says uh, in the information here that his daughters were clearly involved in adding to it in later years. It's filled with articles, poems, sketches, graphics, newspaper cuttings, and theatre playbills. And just on the pages that are open to display here, we've got some sketches of faces and something that looks vaguely like an attempt at a sock puppet or a polar bear or something. I'm not really clear what that is. There's some illustrations of what look to be either very well-equipped burglars or some sort of uh, fire team dealing with uh, something. Goodness me, that really does show us how long ago this was. This is sort of pre-punch dandies and uh, people wearing wigs making uh, comic comments to each other in what looks not unlike Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. The subject of our last visit here. There's a list of public speeches going on in Harrow in 1823, all in Latin. I think that bringing things to life and making connections between past and present, we've tried to include that in our Dickens celebrations here at the museum. So in addition to the exhibition, we've asked a number of prominent individuals who have a relationship to either Dickens and or child welfare to select something from the Charles Dickens Museum, which is round the corner in Doughty Street, and place it in the Foundling Museum in relationship 
with displays we have here. So the actress Gillian Anderson has made a selection. Um, the writer and comedian Amanda Yanucci has made a selection. John Snow, the um, journalist, Channel 4 news presenter, and also somebody who's very active with the children's charity New Horizons, he's made a selection. Um, Mark Dickens, who's the head of the Dickens clan, uh, he is a selection. And then finally, Tulip Sadiq, who is the um, Camden councillor for culture and uh, who wrote her dissertation on Dickens and writes beautifully about developing her view of London from Dickens, which she read as a child in Dhaka as she was growing up. So I think that idea that even now Dickens is a route in for people to make that connection between the hospital, the foundlings, and that wider social situation of women and children falling through the cracks. It's quite clear that he was a force for good in all the ways described. Um, His contribution to literature can't be overestimated. Um, We know that there was some questionable sides to his private life, but I sort of want to ask whether there's anything about his his public work, um, his philanthropy. Is there there any texturing to that, or is he just a a knight in shining armour? I think the texture is this extraordinary sort of difference between his public and his private life because there's no doubt about it, his energies in terms of his philanthropic philanthropic work was enormous from supporting the wives and children of um, actors and friends who had died early, his support of women like Susan Main, uh, his petitioning on behalf of, of uh, sort of the disadvantaged, his work with Urania Cottage, his work kind of for um, uh, newspaper vendors is another charity that he supported. It's completely phenomenal and he was writing all of his novels and his serialised publications like Household Words. I mean, I genuinely... I think his his output is staggering. But it is strange then when you look at his family life and his the way that he treated his wife and his quite distant relationship with his own children. And I think it makes him it makes him the more interesting and the more complex. And I don't think he's not the first person, man or woman, to have a um there to be a difference between the public and the private person but I think the public person was a huge force for good and I think somebody who was very humane who saw things as being grey more than they were black and white in terms of notions of sin and guilt which are terms that were very often banded about when it came to women who found themselves in difficult personal situations. The wonderful Caro Howell there. Thank you to Caro and to uh, Gemma Colgan as well here at the museum for allowing us access to the exhibition. Well, Chris West and Peter Stubbley, what did you make of what you saw downstairs? I thought it was excellent. It really was. It's brought the whole subject um, perfectly into focus. Very, very impressed. You must come and see it, please. Everybody come and see it. There's something there about Dickens' women in his personal life, which we sort of touched on there. Seems like a rather dark underbelly. And, of course, after the uh, guided tour from Caro, she did mention as well Tolstoy, who she considers to be a far superior writer when it comes to depicting women, and yet far more of an expletive when it comes to his treatment of women. I I wonder what that's about, that sort of duality. For some reason, um, a lot of famous writers and Celebrities seem to be um, not exactly liberal when it comes to treating women. For some reason, I'm not sure why that is. The, recently, the Justin Lee Collins, although it's hard to call him a celebrity, it's more 
he has a chat show, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> he was recently in news uh, convicted of harassing his former girlfriend, so... Yes, that's right. Apparently she had to write down all of her previous uh, sexual encounters for him and had to sleep in a particular way. And throughout... He threw out, apparently, all of the DVDs that contained film stars that she took a shine to. I don't know if we can really generalise from, from any of those <laughs> ideas. I know, Peter, that you've had generalisations made about you simply because the subject you choose to write about is on the, the gruesome end of the spectrum. Yeah, just because I... I mean, my day job is a court reporter at the Old Bailey, so I basically sit in listening to murder trials all the time. So I think the first question that a lot of people ask me is... Um, Aren't you affected by that? Um, are you are you a weirdo? And then finally, are you a serial killer? So, I'd so sorry. Where where the hell is the logic in that line of questioning? Okay, so uh, let's take this. I'm going to dismiss the are you a weirdo? I mean, rightly or wrongly, I've no idea. But are you a serial killer? Seems like a very strange thing. You're a serial killer, so you go and start reporting on court cases. That doesn't fly. But what about the what about the idea that you take a, a rather gruesome delight in uh, some of this stuff? Is is there anything in that? To be honest, I don't read a lot of a lot of thriller books or murder mystery books. Um, I think I just like the stories that come out and the it's interesting psychology of what puts people in these situations where they, you know, one minute you'll have, you're, you're married to somebody and the next minute you've uh, battered them to death with a, a rolling pin. It's, so it's, it's working out what, what's going on in, your, in somebody's mind at that time. It's, I find it a bit fascinating sometimes. So. Are you shockable? Um, yes. I mean... It, it's, I think it's easy to, when it's not happening to you and when you're just listening to it, it's easy to sort of detach yourself from it slightly. I mean, obviously, if, if somebody came out with me with a knife, I'd be very shocked. I'm curious to know what you think about some of the ideas being posited by the Tory conference at the moment. You'll bear in mind, and I think there's a lot of political point scoring rather than it necessarily being a serious policy suggestion, but it seems that they've suggested that householders are able to take action up to grossly disproportionate action against, for example, burglars or home invaders, which seems to me a better term, um, from stateside. And I think Chris Grayling explained that the uh, what would be inappropriate was if you knocked a burglar out in your home and he's lying there unconscious and then you stab him. That's not OK, but anything up until that point is seems to me like uh, sort of policing on the cheap or something like that just arming the household domestic militia or something like that uh, what, what do you think of that kind of uh, idea as policy given the sort of stuff that you see every day in your court reporting job um well it, it's quite rare to be honest um usually it's the it's the householder who gets the worst end of it and i think these situations where householder actually kills or injures a, a burglar is few and far between but i mean it seems to me that the jury's in the best position to work that out i mean the police are still going to have to investigate these incidents anyway so it's hard to see how they can how the government can actually say well this is a this is something you can go investigate and this isn't i mean so it's, it seems a bit overly prescriptive because every situation is different i mean there's been some cases where somebody's shot at a burglar who's running away i mean Fair enough. They came into your house with a knife, but he's running away. Does that does that still give you the right to shoot him in the back? I, I'm not sure. It seems to me that a lot of the stuff we're talking about here has the sense. I don't know if this is strictly true. Even as I start the sentence, but the, the idea of uh, foundlings, of servants have, uh, having to conceal births, uh, things of those sort, that they seem to be things that are, are long past. And as I say, I could be completely wrong about that. But they, they don't seem like current 
issues. As you compare the murders of 1888 to the sort of murders, and of course the Old Bailey does deal with some uh, spectacularly serious stuff, what similarities do you see? Funny enough, there's quite a lot of similarities between then and now in society anyway, because um, uh, at the time there was an old Etonian prime minister. Um, the, the Queen was celebrating a jubilee at the time. Um, I think um, police commissioners was resigning. I think the Commissioner for London recently, well, I think it was a couple of years ago now, um, various scandals happening. And um, the only thing we're missing is a, is a rampaging serial killer, th- uh, thankfully. So, um, but... Um, the, you know, there still exists that you know domestic murders. They, they're still happening, even though they're overlooked by the newspapers um, at, at, nowadays. Um, I mean, I think the major difference is 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 the infanticides, which you see very rarely now. I mean, I think there was a case recently of a, a, a baby, a newborn baby, found in a in a field in in a bin somewhere in South London. But um, it's very rare now. Whereas at that time, there was you know literally dozens. Of happening in a year, so it is remarkable, isn't it, that the domestic murders get such a low profile? If my memory serves, two women per week are killed in uh, domestic murders, and I, I certainly don't see them paraded across the front of the newspaper. All of which is miserable territory. Uh, so let's lighten the mood a little bit and talk about some uh, positive upcoming stuff. Let's talk about Simon Callow. He's a figure much associated ah. with uh, Dickens. I know uh, I sort of see a gleam of admiration in your eye, Chris West. Uh, yeah, I have to say that um, uh, from four weddings and a funeral, that's the first time I can remember sort of watching him, as it were. And uh, he's now at the Playhouse in London. I think it finishes 15th of November. And he's doing a mystery, the mystery of Charles Dickens, taken from the uh, Peter Ackroyd script. Um, uh, Peter Ackroyd is certainly my favourite um, book about Dickens, and Simon Callow is absolutely masterful. There's no doubt about it. He stands there doing his one-man show. He has the eye contact with the. It seems the entire audience the way Dickens did. Oh right, so he's performing as in the style uh, that Dickens read. Indeed, and um, it's well known that uh, Dickens wasn't the greatest of actors, but he was probably the greatest in his one-man shows and he could uh, raise 14, 15, 16,000 pounds by today's standards by his um, after dinner speeches. Uh, he was absolutely superb at that aspect of what he did. Well, Simon Callow has studied it so deeply and I think he's probably the nearest we'll ever see to uh, a, a perfect imitation of Charles Dickens on stage. He goes through the characters uh, one by one, completely changing it all around. It's exciting, it's vibrating right the way through the the whole performance um again i would say do go and see it um if he's not too worn out he's then going from um this one man show to christmas carol and he'll be doing that from um the day after my event i think it's the 26th of november you've been known to don a beard yourself of course Oh, yes, I dress up as Charles Dickens for my talks, um, but uh, I'm not in his league. I'm really not. I'm a lot cheaper, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm not in his league. He's an absolute maestro. I can't speak highly enough of um, uh, my thrill at seeing him in that. Uh, I wish you wouldn't sit on the fence like this. It's very difficult to know what you, what you feel about the whole thing. Uh, Chris, I understand that you want to gather together Paralympians. Uh, yes, Paralympians, Olympians for this uh, uh, great event that we're holding on the 25th November. And also anybody else who is really inspirational in terms of doing half minute, uh, sorry, half hour 
talks to these youngsters who will be coming through and have a, having a really big thrill. We want them to go home having had a, a fantastic time, a, a great celebration of Dickens, and be very proud of raising money for such a wonderful hospital, Great Ormond Street. And as you say, particularly uh, keen to hear from people who... Well, you mentioned a Paralympian who has connection with Great Ormond Street. He was himself... Uh, had to go through the... Great Ormond Street Institution and was healed by them and went on to win, I think, two medals at the Paralympics. Him or anybody like him who is able to reflect on what Great Ormond Street is all about, how it's helped them perhaps, and, and really uh, the, the idea that you can come through troubled times and, and a difficult medical history and still triumph. How can people get in touch with you if uh, they'd like to participate or to suggest someone? Anybody who of an inspirational nature, as we've described, um, can just get in touch with me. I can give my phone number. Let's, let's give an email address or something like that. Yes. Uh, my email is chriswandco at yahoo.co.uk or my website is www.charlesdickinslondon.net. Since we're in website territory, it seems churlish not to find out where we can purchase a copy of uh, the but what's the what's the full title of the book it's uh, 1888 london murders in the year of the ripper really trading on the ripper stuff mm. we, we have to be honest here not quite avoiding uh, ripperism at all yeah it's hard to avoid it really because that the, the, the reason behind it was was because of jack the ripper anyway so um, plus obviously the, the history press who publish it um it helps sell it i think is the answer <laughs> Do you have? Do you do a sort of website or a, a blog or anything like that from from inside the court? I suppose that you're pretty restricted, aren't you? Well, I don't want to talk about murders all day, but um, I, I do sort of run the the murder map website, which is aims to sort of track every murder that happens in London. Um, to what end? Um, to, just to, so that they're it's, a, it's kind of so they're not forgotten, really, and just to, so that people can see what's happening in their area um, if they if they want to. So there's a trend at the moment to, in, in you know, particularly in America, to, to map murders and other crimes. And it's sort of the idea is so that people knows what's, know what's happening in their local area. I'm astonished to hear that you're doing it rather than a government department. Um, the government obviously have their own website, which, but it doesn't actually focus on murders. So it's, and I think we started before them. But um, yeah, it's uh, so you're sort of single-handedly responsible for the house prices fluctuation. Uh, <laughs> we have had people um, sending emails saying, "Oh, please don't mention the house number because I, I'd quite like to rent my house out, please." And uh, we've had other emails saying, "Oh, I'm sh- I was shocked to discover that a murder happened in this in the in the same room I'm living in." Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's we do, we're obviously not going out there trying to de- depress housing market, although that that would be nice as it's quite expensive to live here as it is anyway. But. Ah, I see your strategy now. Right, so you're looking to get on the housing ladder, and you thought, I know. <laughs> Chris West and Peter Stubbley, we have just time to fit in the uh, weekly torture that is the historical quiz. I've got five questions for you. Uh, it's a head-to-head thing, and uh, how did you get on the last time, Chris? absolute rubbish like the prime minister so i'm in good um in good company <laughs> oh yes of course yes he's not doing very well on historical stuff okay well let's see if we can do better this time here we go monday the 8th of october 1965 the post office tower now known of course as the bt tower in fitzrovia becomes operational as a major hub for national microwave communications 
little known fact, today it is apparently the only building in the UK that is legally allowed to do what? Broadcast? Not broadcast. Have have parties all night? I don't know. No, but I can say <laughs> Harold Wilson opened it. Good fact, not the fact we're looking for. Okay, think about emergencies and the shape of it. It's the only building legally allowed to do what? Fire. Blast off into space. Blast off into space, yes, is the... Cr- no, it's not the correct. <laughs> it is the only building uh, legally allowed to be evacuated using its lifts. Well, there you go, there's a the thing. Next time you go to a party, all night or otherwise. Yeah. So no point so far. Tuesday, the 9th of October, 1975, an IRA bomb explodes at a bus stop near which tube station killing one person and injuring many others 1975 i saw this in the somewhere what did you see the old gate not all gate you need to go further west it was caught nope Tottenham court road you, you're sort of uh, beginning to circle it now marblanche green park green park yes there we go that was tortuous. A uh, vaguely deserved point there for Peter Stubbley. <laughs> Wednesday, the 10th of October, 1881. Okay, you've got no excuses, either of you. The Savoy Theatre is opened on the Strand, becoming the first public building in the world to benefit from what modern feature? Electric light. Yes, home and dry, Chris West. <laughs> Electric light, first building in the world to be entirely lit by electricity. There's a bonus point here if you want it. Gilbert and Sullivan put a production on as the first performance to be hosted at the new theatre. Do you want to have a shot at what it was? Little known one. I, uh, I was going to say Madam Butterfly. It's not... No, they're not little known enough, no. Patience. It was patience, yes. Well done, Chris, too. Fantastic. Uh, so you're in the lead now. You've got one point ahead of Peter Stubbley. Thursday, 11th of October, 1573. Sir John Hawkins, treasurer of the Royal Navy, suffers an assassination attempt while riding down the Strand. The would-be assassin, one Peter Burchett, stabbed Hawkins, mistaking him for Sir Christopher Hatton. I hope you're following this. Despite being severely injured by the attack, Hawkins would survive. But what became of the attacker, Burchett? Uh, I assume he was convicted, sentenced, and, and cruelly butchered on the hung, drawn, and quartered. He was he was hanged. Yes, that'll do. Yes, no surprises there, really. So we got two all. It all hangs on the last question. Good luck, fellas. Uh, Friday, the twelfth of October, sixteen oh nine. London composer Thomas Ravencroft publishes an early version of what would become a very well-known nursery rhyme. But which one? Oranges and lemons. No. Nope. Barbar Black Sheep. No. London Bridge is falling down. Was it falling down by that point? No, no, not that one. Three blind mice. Three blind mice, yes, well done. (laughs) Our our first ever uh, musical (laughs) accompaniment to a. Chris West, I'm delighted to say uh, uh, that you've pulled yourself back from the jaws of defeat. <laughs> he's, he's taking about Peter Stubbley, an admirable second place. Very good. We have to tie off. We're right up against the clock. A quick reminder of where people can find your book about the other murders of 1888, Peter Stubbley. Uh, if you just type into Google, it will come up there in all its non-glory. <laughs> and Chris West, details uh, perhaps of your great Ormond Street gig. Uh, yes, sponsors, volunteers, whatever. Uh, Chris W and Co at yahoo.co.uk. Thank you for joining us here. And uh, once again, thank you to the Foundling Museum for having us. 
And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Peter Stubbley and Chris West. Also to Caro Howell and Gemma Colgan. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.